Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Coffee with the Queen. I'm Nicole. And I'm Cindy. We hope you're all having a healthy, happy, wonderful start to 2021. So to kick off Season 2 of our podcast, we are acknowledging the proverbial, often invisible, unknown elephant in your coffee cup, and that's coffee flavor. Specifically, what elements create an individual coffee's flavor? So if you're interested in learning more about the types of flavors present in your cups, when we say caramel, chocolate, strawberry, and they're over 850, we're actually going to cover that in a later episode. Today, we're really jumping into the foundational blocks of what creates coffee flavor. Then, for our fun bit, Cindy will share her triple chocolate latte recipe. As a reminder, everything covered in today's podcast is available as a blog entry, viewable on our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com, and accessible via links on our podcast site, coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com. So one of the things we most frequently hear as coffee roasters is, I'm looking for coffee with a lot of flavor. Mm. And then we hold our breath and hope you continue so we don't have to pepper you with a bunch of questions. So speaking about coffee, the term flavor has the same vague specificity as a cook saying they're going to add some spice to a dish or a builder saying they need some wood. The concept is clear, but the specifics remain undefined and ambiguous. So today we're going to break down those building blocks of coffee flavor creation, starting with plant species and working right up to brew methods. Good. I think this is really, really necessary because people know what their taste buds mean when they say, I want my coffee to be flavorful, but they often don't know how to express that to us. Yeah, no, that's true. And actually, this whole podcast came about because someone emailed me asking about how to get more flavor in their coffee. They were trying to figure out why why they weren't loving their coffee. And they, um, we'll jump into this later, but they were modifying their grind and their brew method to try to get flavor rather than moving to a coffee that has more of the flavor characteristics that they would like, like good mouthfeel, body, and then kind of building on it from there. So Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I just had a similar situation with somebody who was using the wrong grind method for the coffee that they liked. Speaking to people and listening to their questions, I, and you probably had a similar experience, realized that often what they're doing is manipulating the coffee they have to try to get something that they want rather than and they might not even know that what they want without all that manipulation is probably out there if they know if they know how to find it so that's what we're going to hopefully help people get to today so the most impactful determinant of a bean structure which includes basic flavor and textual characteristics is its species and variety and basically i would consider that bean dna while many factors will influence how a bean develops and presents itself as a brewed coffee the bean's dna or structural characteristics remain unchanged so coffee species. While most coffee lovers are familiar with Arabica and Robusta, the two most common coffee species, there are actually over 100 coffee species, most of which are in the wild. Many are used for research and or are tested for hybridization, but you're very unlikely to come across these. Most of us will only ever drink Arabica or Robusta coffee, which are the two main species used to produce what we consider, what we call the coffee drink. So Arabica plants are high-grown, shade-grown, meaning that they're grown under this large canopy of trees with no direct sun exposure and require at least six months to bring their seeds to maturation. This prolonged, arduous growing period offers the seed ample time to develop complex, nuanced sugars and acidity. So as a result, Arabica seeds tend to be larger than a Robusta. They tend to be smooth, pleasantly flavorful, and pleasantly aromatic. Robusta plants, on the other hand, are low-grown in direct sunlight. They grow very fast, and they produce multiple crops per year. Robusta seeds are packed with caffeine. They often taste bitter and have almost a burnt coffee smell. All right. So this is a little bit of a non sequitur, but Arabicas are harder to grow. They take longer. 
this leads to the differences you'll see at the store between Arabica and Robusta. And many people ask why artisan coffee is more expensive than, mm-hmm. let's say, the Robusta you see in the grocery store. And once you understand how arduous the growing process is, it makes sense. You get what you pay for. Yeah, and we do have a whole blog on that if people really want to see these plants have to struggle to survive. So within the Arabica and Robusta species exist numerous bean varieties or organic mutations. These varieties maintain the species' intrinsic attributes, that would be the flavor, the texture, and any kind of tones and acidity, but they'll vary in one or more significant ways from the main source variety. So these varieties can be artificially cultivated, and will be known as cultivars, such as Java or Bumatan, or they can be a natural variation, such as the much-loved Central American Paca, which has just adapted over time in response to new environmental factors, or terroir. Terroir is the everything of a particular piece of a growing land or region. So it's the soil composition, the rainfall, the altitude, the temperature, the humidity, sunlight, and anything else that will impact that coffee plant while the beans and seeds are growing. And this terroir is really what determines the coffee's unique tones and texture. Elevation, for example, impacts the beans' sweetness and acidity, while soil composition controls water availability and nutrient content. So collectively, species, variety, and terroir will create the beans' structural characteristics. Well, I'm glad that you brought up terroir because many people have heard the term, but they have no idea what it is. So it's the beans everything. It's everything that goes into the beans growing conditions. Yeah, it's, so it's kind of like it's the food that feeds the beans. So even though you start off with you like all this potential in terms of the bean DNA, it still needs to be nourished, and that's really where the that's really the terroir. The beans womb. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm just gonna reset way back to something you mentioned or you asked earlier. This also goes into the terroir differences. The beans growing environment is what helps it develop natural defenses. Arabica beans are grown so high up in elevation that they are naturally protected. Their environment protects them from a lot of direct threats. Many bugs don't grow there. Coffee rust doesn't grow there. Mold. I mean, they're just they're naturally protected by their terroir and by their growing environment. The robusta plants grow very low in direct sunlight and have developed a much hardier natural resistance to environmental threats because they've been exposed to them. Right. So that's another reason Arabicas are more expensive than Robusta. It's just they're, they're fragile, they're delicate. You know, one small thing in the environment could really destroy an entire crop. Robusta is much hardier. Much harder to kill. I mean, it's still good, but it's harder to kill a Robusta plant. No, these are good facts. These are good facts. People often wonder about coffee pricing, and this leads right into it. Yeah. And so some of you might be wondering, like, hey, so what would happen if I replanted a robusta plant at an elevation of 5,000 feet above sea level in perfect Arabica conditions and kind of solve this whole problem? Basically, the plant would die. The reverse is true for Arabica, should you ever try to grow it low in direct sunlight. The structure or the DNA of these two species, including the the flavor and textural characteristics and possibilities, is highly developed and strongly linked to the general aspects of their indigenous terroir. And that would include elevation, water availability, and natural environmental threats. So, no, we cannot just get sturdy, hardy, robust beans and bring them to the top of the mountain and plant them there and hope that they'll come out like arabicas. Right. It's, it's like people, you know, it's like survival of the fittest and your DNA adjusts to exactly. the conditions that you're in. Exactly. So now that we have the bean structural DNA set by bean species variety and terroir, we can get into what I would call the grooming phase or processing. So as most of you know, coffee beans are the seeds of coffee cherries. Before being roasted, these seeds must be cleaned, and that's a process we in the coffee world call processing, or the physical act of separating the coffee pulp 
mucilage, which is a sticky, sweet, honey-flavored substance that separates the parchment from the pulp, then the parchment, or the pulp, from the green seed. So basically, we get to take everything that's, you know, we have the green seed in the center of our cherry, and we get to remove everything else, and that's processing. And there are four primary processing methods. Dry, often referred to as natural processing, wet processing, semi-washed processing, which is also referred to as gilling basa. I say that wrong, so any of our Indian listeners out there um, are offended. I'm sorry. Always try to say this right, and I always try, I always say it wrong. And honey processing. Processing methods used on a bean will impact its flavor, acidity, and texture. Dry processed beans, which includes most Africans, ferment with their cherry pulp still attached, and they get to absorb the seeds while they're drying. Will absorb that rich, smooth sweet cherry flavor or brightness, and it won't necessarily come across as cherry, but it will come across as like a fruity, you know, whatever that cherry was exposed to while growing. So it could be a fruity flavor, a berry flavor, a flower flavor, but it will have sweetness. Wet processed beans, which includes most Central and South American coffees, are cleaned prior to fermentation. They tend to be very pure in seed character and generally less acidic than dry processed beans. Semi-washed beans, which includes most Indonesians, retain some of their mucilage during fermentation. So unlike wet processed beans, which ferment in large water tanks, semi-washed beans dry on solid surfaces such as brick or earth, and they actually absorb flavors from their drying surface. This is why Indonesian coffees often are referred to as earthy or spicy. They're literally just picking up those flavors. So if they're around peppers, they're going to pick up pepper tones. And if they're around chocolate, they're going to pick up chocolate tones. They're just really absorbent. Yeah, I'm going to just hop in for a minute because processing leads to these flavors that the beans are associated with. So it's the soil they grow in, but it's also their processing because a lot of these methods are used because of where the bean is grown and how long it takes to get it to market. So they're intrinsically related to what you think of when you think of an African or an Indonesian in a typical manner. I was Yes, for the, the three that we've mentioned. Now, the fourth one, honey processing, is a bit of a wild card because that happens right. anywhere, and it's really controlled by the processor. So this is one that doesn't have, a, I would say, a location that's directly linked to it, as you just mentioned, Cindy, like the other three methods. With honey processed beans, the beans are dried with a specific percent of their mucilage still attached, to the seed to give bring in extra natural sweetness. The right. amount of mucilage remaining during the fermentation determines the color and honey sweetness of the bean. While processing does not change the structure of the bean, it definitely influences the flavor and how the structural characteristics present themselves in the cup. Another way to think of this is like going to the hairdresser. A good hairstylist can transform your hair into a number of styles. They can put on it. They can make it do a million things that will make it look different each time. We can't actually change your hair. <laughs> yeah, that's what a wig is for. Right, but we don't have coffee <laughs> wig. So this is, I did say that to my mom, and she was like, well, that's an interesting way to think about it. <laughs> Trying to think outside of the box a little to make it easier for, for non-coffee people. If I've just confused you or frightened you by making well, no, I mean, your coffee has hair, I'm sorry. There are baking analogies, you know, like chocolate is chocolate, but you can temper it differently and it can create a completely different dessert. Yeah, but to circle us back, the growing conditions really, the the bean type and growing conditions really create the DNA and then the processing is kind of cleaning it up and how we want it to look. And now we finally get to the roasting part or what I would call the bean chemistry. And that's where we can change an actual bean structure. The processing, again, is more like grooming. Roasting is where we have a real chemical change happen. So green coffee seeds are raw seeds, and like any other seed, their chemical composition is going to alter when heated. The longer the bean is exposed to heat, the greater that structural change. For coffee, this primarily means a structural change in the bean sugars 
proteins, lipids, and minerals. In more scientific terms, the coffee bean undergoes something called a Maillard reaction when heated between 284 and 329 degrees Fahrenheit. During the Maillard reaction, the bean sugars are going to split into two groups, and so they'll have the amino acid groups, which is really where you're going to have your bean's acidity, and then your simple sugar group, which creates a lot of the coffee flavors that we know, that we identify. So caramel, all those coffee flavors on the coffee bean. So during this reaction, the simple sugars group is going to break down, it's going to turn brown, maybe that roasted color, and it's going to re begin to release flavor notes and aromatics. The longer the bean roasts, the greater this breakdown. Eventually, these sugars and acids are going to liquefy and create an oil called caffeol. Um, it's going to appear as a sheen or just like a, a luminescence on the bean. You know, when you look at a bean, a roasted coffee bean, it's always going to have either a luminant look, it's going to look like it's got light inside of it, or it's going to have an actual oil coating and that, that breakdown of sugars and acids. So once you have that first hint of a sheen, which often is associated with the first crack in roasting, the coffee bean is technically roasted. And then we go into the art of muting, accentuating, and choosing which of the beans, 1,000 aromatic and 850 flavor notes, are actually going to present themselves in the final cup as well as the coffee's final texture. And this all falls to the roaster. Yeah, and I'm glad you said aromatics because this reaction releases that scent, which so many people associate as the most important aspect of their cup. Like you smell that morning coffee. Yeah. So oh, it aroma release is so important. It does. Yeah. It, it, that's that first sensation of taste. And, and to be honest, if anyone has smelt green coffee beans just being heated, it's disgusting. <laughs> you need to wait till they get to that point. You need for that. You need that hand reaction, or else it tastes really grassy, and I don't know, like off-put wheatgrass or something. So now moving into coffee roasting, and I'm gonna say this, knowing we're a bit biased here, but a coffee roaster is like a talented chef, working with raw materials of whichever coffee or coffees he or she's using, and trying to get the very best out of them. So any coffee can taste good. But it really takes someone who's very talented and really understands the bean structural characteristics and processing to consistently roast green beans into what we would recognize as phenomenal coffee. Even more challenging is creating a unique coffee blend. So any coffee can be roasted to any shade and it can be mixed with any other coffee. And the possibilities are really almost endless. So a good coffee roaster is really an expert who is able to dig into and roast very specifically, and we're talking like milliseconds here, each coffee to bring out its best characteristics and create a consistently wonderful cup. So to learn more about key characteristics of a roast, we're not going to cover that here, please go to our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com. We have a whole entry devoted to it. We also have a podcast devoted to it that's titled Roast Blends and Bean Freshness. As a quick three-liner for those of you who need a refresher, lighter roasted coffees are brighter, lighter in mouthfeel, lighter in shade, and tend to have delicate, sweet, fruit, floral, citrus, and berry notes. Medium roasted coffees often highlight a bean's textural characteristics and dominant notes, meaning that some of the lighter upper notes, those really light, bright, delicate notes, will be lost during the roasting. And then dark roasts are roasted to a specific roast shade and tend to have a heavier mouthfeel and more pronounced base notes, which tend to be represented in earthy chocolate or nut notes. Just as Nicole said before, we have a whole podcast and blog post dedicated to this but it's important to note that some beans by region just tend to represent better roasted to a particular shade. Yeah, that's true. They great. I'd say uh, Central or probably Africans, for example, or Kenyans in specific, have beautiful, beautiful 
upper, bright upper notes and wonderful acidity. They're incredibly clean and light. Most Kenyans are roasted to a medium or light shade. If you roasted that a Kenyan to a dark shade, you would lose all that and it would just taste flat. Right. So you're just losing, you're losing the importance. The brilliance of the coffee would get lost in the roast. Yeah. Yeah. Like you'll very, it'd be very rare, I think, to see a, actually, if you ever see a dark roasted Kenyan, I wouldn't have it because that means something's probably wrong with the bean. And so they just, (laughs) yeah, something's wrong with the roaster. (laughs) Yeah. Something's wrong there and just stay away. So connecting these disparate pieces of information that we kind of thrown at you today, if you enjoy a smooth, flavorful cup of coffee, they start with an Arabica. From there, you'll likely be able to refine your Arabica preferences down to a specific country or region. The next step in your little coffee exploration will be to identify the type of terroir that your preferred coffees grow in. And so that could be you know, certain elevations or in certain soils, such as volcanic soil or sandy soil. During this exploration, you may also identify a particular variety of coffee you like, such as an Ethiopian heirloom geisha or Bourbon paca. And so the geisha, I believe, is actually it's grown in, in Ethiopia and Panama right now, and that was actually the most expensive coffee sold to date a few years ago. It's a beautiful, rare varietal. I have never had one. It probably never will. I mean, I think it, it cost green. It was $600 a pound. I probably never will have one. <laughs> probably never have one either. <laughs> so next, next, you may want to try coffees roasted using different methods. So I finally, and I know this seems a little late in the game, but finally, I recommend you end by exploring roast. I say end with the roast, which probably seems counterintuitive, but I encourage you to end with roast because people often think they only enjoy a particular roast. But it's really a set of flavors and textures that you're looking for and not necessarily a roast profile. If you find that that if you find it easier to start with roast or you just know that you love a particular roast, definitely start there and just reverse the order. And I agree with you wholeheartedly because it wasn't until I became a real coffee connoisseur that I realized that I enjoy many medium roasts depending on their flavor profiles, although I am particularly a dark roast gal. Yeah, and I'm more of a medium roast because I tend to like upper notes. I tend to like a little bit of sweetness and citrus in my coffee, but I will also like light roast and dark roast depending on the region and the bean. You might have a much broader palate than you think you do (laughs) if you start looking. Exactly, because I do. I do. There are some medium roasts that I enjoy immensely, but I also now like different coffees depending on the time of day, depending on my mood. But I'm always, always going to defer to a dark roast. It's just my palate. It's just what I enjoy the most. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone will have their, everyone's going to have their preference. So once you know your preferred coffee profile, your coffee flavor journey is actually going to continue. Once beans are roasted, a coffee beans flavor continues to change with oxidization, grind, and brew methods. Oxidization occurs when the bean is exposed to air. So coffee beans develop CO2 naturally while roasting. And some of that CO2 has to be released before you drink your coffee or it's just going to taste grassy and sour. Right. Said, every time you know CO2 releases, oxygen is coming in. We all know this. And if the bean absorbs too much ox- oxygen, it actually becomes stale and bitter. So there's this critical point where you want to make sure that your coffee, when it's optimum, which is usually when you get it from the roaster, you want to preserve your coffee for as long as possible, protect it from oxygen by keeping it in an airtight container. Next, grind and grind consistency impact extraction, which also impacts flavor. So coffee that is ground into granules that are too large for a brew method and are ground unevenly is likely to under-extract and taste sour. Conversely, beans that are ground too finely for a brew method will over-extract and taste muddy or bitter. So we often see over-extraction with individuals who are looking for more flavor and texture in their coffee. So if you find yourself concentrating your cup, like really, you know, 
increasing the amount of coffee grounds you have to water, it may be time for you to explore a lighter roast and a coffee that has more flavor and more powerful base notes. Finally, brew method greatly impacts the final texture of your coffee, which will change how you're actually going to taste your flavor notes. So drip and pressure brew methods tend to be lighter in mouthfeels and really packed with complex base, upper notes, and acidity. Immersion brewed coffee, such as a French press brewed coffee, tends to be much heavier in mouthfeel and will come across often to people as more powerful in flavor because it has oils that are still present in the cup and those oils kind of trick our tongues into think, to thinking that the coffee has more flavor when really what we're tasting are the oils. And there you have it, your coffee flavor building box. For those of you who subscribe to our newsletter or follow our website, you've probably noticed that we are starting a coffee exploration or coffee ed series, which launched on January 15th. We have something new coming out on February 15th. And kind of in tandem to that, we thought we might run a few podcasts that don't necessarily directly relate to that education series, but kind of support it. And so next month, our series two, we'll be covering some key coffee concepts and terms such as mouthfeel and acidity, and then going over the coffee wheel. But for now, we're going to move on to something much more delicious, which would be Cindy's triple chocolate latte. Oh, thanks, Nicole. So with Valentine's Day fast approaching, I feel it's the perfect time to highlight our newest latte, inspired by the season of love. And that is the triple chocolate latte, which honestly, it's more of a mocha on steroids. In a typical mocha, that's a chocolatey sweet coffee, you would combine your coffee with cocoa powder and some milk and sugar. So this recipe kicks it up a notch. The coffee, while combined with the traditional cocoa, is then mixed with sweet, dark chocolate chocolate milk. And then the whole scrumptious concoction is finished off with deliciously decadent chocolate whipped cream. And to send the whole recipe over the top, you would then sprinkle the finished drink with a dusting of cocoa powder or chocolate shavings or chocolate sauce, whichever one floats your boat the most. So that is three times the regular amount of chocolate in a mocha. So if your sweetie is a chocolate lover, this is the drink that is sure to inspire all of their warmest Valentine feelings. But at this point, I also would invite you to search our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com, for other delicious recipes that are perfect for February. And two specific drinks come to my mind. The first is the Cherry Valentine Mocha, which is reminiscent of a chocolate-covered cherry, only in drink form. And secondly, the chocolate-covered cherry espresso shooter, which is a gorgeous, layered shot. It's beautiful to look at, and it would make a wonderful after-dinner drink if you want something that packs a little bit more of a punch. So as always, the recipes can be found on the blog, and direct links will be found on the bottom of the entry for this podcast on our podcast site coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com. And with that, I will pass the mic back to Nicole. Thanks, Cindy. That does sound really good. It's like, I'm ready. I'm ready to like drop my New Year's resolutions right now. Um, chocolate, 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 chocolate. <laughs> it has, has antioxidants, right? So yes. That's really just a super powerful antioxidant drink that you created. <laughs> yes, people remember that. The chocolate is good for you. Eat the chocolate. What do I always say? Eat the chocolate, drink the coffee, buy the shoes. Do it. <laughs> I like that. It should be new life motto. Okay, guys. Well, thank you. That concludes episode one of season two, Coffee with the Queen. Really appreciate your joining us. Again, links to everything that we've discussed in today's episode are available on our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com.
coffeewiththequeen.com and on our podcast site, coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com. If you like this podcast, please let us know by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. And more importantly, if you have any feedback or topics you'd like to discuss, we would really love to hear about them. Like this, today's topic was inspired by some great questions that we received late last year. I'm sure you have great questions. We'd love to take a stab at answering them. So, yeah, we'd uh, love the feedback, guys. So please let us know what you're thinking, any questions you have, or even if you just want to say hi, please say hi. Yes, our email is info at thequeenbean.com. And finally, to learn more about our coffees, please visit our website, thequeenbean.com. We actually have a great Valentine's Day special going right now. It's a gift if uh, you have a coffee-loving chocolate lover in your life. So that, thank you. Thanks, guys. See you next time.